This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Soft sell, I believe, getting us into our next guest. He's in our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Is it soft sell? It's not soft sell. Is it soft sell? No. I can't remember. No. I'll figure it out. We'll get it. Anyway, Sean Donnan, uh, great guy, music aficionado. He may correct me on this. Senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. Naked eyes. Naked eyes. There you go. Thank Sorry. you, Google. That's my bad. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, Sean Donnan, trade has sort of, at least in the public consciousness, the investor consciousness, maybe taken, sorry to say, a little bit of a backseat to more geopolitical matters, at least over the past week. And yet, something big may be happening in D.C., in your neck of the woods next week. Yeah. So, it turns out that investors get scared by the prospects of real wars as well as trade wars, as you point out. So, it hasn't been the happy New Year so far. But next week, on the trade war front, at least, we're going to get some happy news. Uh, the U.S. and China are finally going to sign that deal. How do you know, Sean Donnan? Not that I'm, you know... Not that you're cynical? Cynical or negative or anything. But, uh, you know, funnier things have happened. It, you're absolutely right. We shouldn't count our eggs before they hatch. Uh, we should always watch out for our promises, et cetera. Uh, look, I, the president— It's going to happen, you're pretty sure? Look, I, and I think the best reason we have to believe that January 15th, uh, the president and a visiting Chinese delegation are going to meet at the White House and sign this thing is that the Chinese actually, for the first time, confirmed it today. Um, and that is important. We've had a lot of— um, words from the president, a lot of tweeting from the president, promising this, this signing ceremony January 15th, and the Chinese finally did confirm that. Now, that's a big deal, and that's part of the reason the markets are, are hitting those record highs now is because they calmed down before Christmas when this thing was first starting to take shape, and it looked like uh, the U.S. and China weren't going to continue escalating uh, their trade wars. Right. And that's something investors and businesses like. But... Um, it's the beginning of a process rather than a big change. And so trade's right. not going to go away as a kind of uncertainty factor. Well, Sean Donnan, as you know, and certainly our audience knows, trade was a big topic of discussion on the campaign trail for then-candidate, presidential candidate Donald Trump, and certainly as president. So is Trump winning or losing when it comes to trade? What does the trade data, trade gap show us? Right. So earlier this week, we got uh, the latest trade data for November. It gives us the first 11 months of last year. And there's some good news for Donald Trump in that it looks like for the first time in his presidency, presidency, uh, the U.S. trade deficit with the world is likely to go down in 2019. Just one month left to go. Now, it will be the second highest on record <laughs> in all likelihood. It'll be over $800 billion. That's a big number. It's more, uh, it'll be higher than when he took office. But the administration has, uh, and they are doing this. I was on the phone with Peter Navarro, Trump's trade advisor, uh, earlier this week, and uh, they're crowing about this. They believe that they are, are changing the direction of the relationship with China and the world. And that's one of the president's big promises, and he's going to be taking that into the election. That said, 
There's the some caveats. The devil's in the details. The devil's in the details. <laughs> and actually, a big reason why uh, the trade deficit is coming down is because of what's happening in the oil sector, right. that shale oil revolution. Uh, the petroleum uh, deficit with the world is way down. In fact, in uh, September, October, and November, the U.S. was a net exporter of petroleum uh, products to the world, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and when you look at non-petroleum goods, the kind of manufactured goods that Donald Trump was promising to change the picture for, well, it's a different story. That trade deficit is actually continuing to go up. And so, Sean, phase two, likely, or is it just sort of a wait and see at this point? I think it is likely, and we've heard this from the president today again, that we will see some kind of negotiating happening on a phase two, but also incredibly unlikely, and I've heard this from folks inside the White House, I've also heard it from plenty of folks down here in Washington, that we actually get a phase two concluded uh, this year. In unlikely, fact, you say. In fact, the president said himself that he didn't think that would happen until after the election. So, uh, while we have you, sorry, I just want to ask you about USMCA. W where do we uh, stand there? I, Carol's rolling her eyes because I didn't call it USMCA. Sorry. No, it's not why I'm rolling well, my eyes. So, oh, and, wow. and actually, USMCA, the president made some news on that. He, hey. uh, he today, uh, while he was talking to reporters, said, and he was talking about uh, his capacity to rename things, and he cited USMCA saying that he had decided to rename NAFTA USMCA in part because it's sounded like the song YMCA. No way! So what's he going to call it? Nafty? Well, no, he's calling it USMCA, well, calling, but he's saying USMCA sounds oh. like YMCA, and that's why you and I remember it. Uh, and we're all forgetting, according to the president, that old bad name NAFTA. Uh, wow. Look, which I so it's rebranding, ultimately. Well, and he's good at that, right? Uh, and, and that is something worth keeping in mind. The, yeah. the, the biggest thing about USMCA is, look, this is NAFTA 2.0. It's a rebranded, repackaged, updated NAFTA. It's in the Senate right now. It's going to go through a whole bunch of committees next week. We may get a vote in the full Senate by the end of the month. All right. Well, we wow. shall see. I'm going to put your story out on Twitter because I think what's interesting, too, is the manufacturing sector, which the president also talked about on the campaign trail, whether or not what's going on with trade is making a difference there. Sean Donnan, you is are the you best. that why you rolled your eyes? That I yes, because I thought that and, with yeah. jobs and I just yeah. thought it would be important, too. You thought that was more important than YMCA? Uh, we brought that news to people I'm going to go now. out on a limb and say yes. Whoa. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. So, Jason, remember earlier this week, um, we caught up with the CEO of Tivity Health, and we talked about nutrition, care, wellness, when it comes to one segment of our population, specifically seniors. Well, here to talk about the equal opportunity and access for all when it comes to healthcare specifically is Dr. Keisha Pollock-Porter, Professor and Associate Dean at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We do want to point out the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, and of course, home to Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Um, Dr. Pollock Porter, nice to have you here with us. When we look at inequalities, we talked about inequalities in general a lot here uh, at Bloomberg, but when it comes to healthcare, how bad are the gaps out there? Give us some perspective. Yeah, first, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Well, let me just start off by saying that we know that there are differences in terms of people's access to health services, people's use of health services, and we know that it's an economic issue because of the large number of the, the great amount of money that's spent on medical care expenditures. 
And why this is important is that these are preventable issues. And if we just do a better job of investing in what we consider more upstream, so things like poverty, education, housing, that actually can help keep people out of the hospital system and help to reduce costs. And Dr. Polly Porter, I wanted to ask you about one specific area where you work, which is around uh, physical activity. And it's so interesting because that feels very tangible in a way. And we're often talking about children and, and physical activity. Help us understand what your work has shown and maybe some of the solutions there. Well, we know that in this country that there are significant gaps in terms of access to being physically active and physical activity levels. We know that only one in four kids in this country are getting the activity they need, and we know that that number is that proportion is even less for children from low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. One thing that we've been doing in our work is promoting something called play streets, and play streets are a way of temporarily transforming a neighborhood. Think about something as ubiquitous as a street in front of where you live. You can take those streets, take them back so that they're not just seen as places for cars and transform them into places for kids to play safely. We see that play streets are really important in areas that don't have access to safe places for kids to be active. And we know when kids aren't active that that has implications for obesity, for um, behavior, for learning. And so we've really been partnering with communities across the country to make these areas more accessible and to give kids safe places to play and be active. It's interesting. I'm listening to you say that, and I thought, man, growing up, I'm one of seven kids. We just lived outside, and that yeah. was every season, winter, summer, <laughs> spring, fall. Um, we didn't need to set up something per se. Uh, we just, that's what we did. And I do wonder, you know, I, I think about healthcare and the deeper issues. Like, you you note that if we had fairer wages, housing and transportation, for instance, there would be a knock-on effect of better health. We have some really deep-seated problems within our society that ultimately affect health care, uh, the situation, the current situation, and the outcome. And, and I think, how do we start to tackle that? What's the best thing to do? I personally believe that it's important that we uh, embrace an approach that we call health equity. And if we have a health equity or an equity approach to policy, mm. which means that every person has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And this means that we need to remove obstacles to accessing good health, such as poverty, discrimination, and their consequences. So if we promote policies that address the significant inequities in terms of access to jobs and education, and housing that really get to those root causes and address poverty and discrimination and racism, I think we can make a difference. And so, Dr. Pollock Porter, where does this need to happen most urgently? Or, or maybe a different way to add, ask it is, what's the most effective layer of government and policymaking that people should be focused on? Is it the city level? Is it even lower down than that? Is it county, state? Where is it? I'm going to say it's at multiple levels. Okay. Um, it's at the local, local government, state government, federal government, and even institutional policies. So thinking about a business, looking at policies within businesses that are really promoting equity, looking at policies within a, a school system. So I truly believe and have seen evidence of impacts of policies at various levels that can be really impactful and make a difference. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Dr. Keisha Pollack-Porter, Professor and Associate Dean at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And as you might have picked up on the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Mike Bloomberg. He's the founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies and also owns this radio station. He does indeed. 
it's trying to turn around itself. We're talking about Bed Bath & Beyond, but man, based on the latest uh, quarterly uh, update, financial update, it's not quite happening yet. And the stock is down about 18%. You've heard Charlie Pellet talk about it uh, throughout the day. Bed Bath & Beyond down 18% at $13.64 a share. So let's get into the story. Following the company, Seema Shah, Director of Consumer and Retail Trends at CreditIntel.com, known to our Bloomberg audience. She's a former analyst with our Bloomberg Intelligence team. Seema on the phone from Great Net Neck, New York. Seema, um, great to be talking with you. Uh, Jason and I walked through the numbers last night. The company mm-hmm. pulling its year forecasts. Um, analysts mm-hmm. have weighing in, have weighed in saying that the results at the company have gone from bad to worse. How do you see it? I think people are just really concerned because they want some sort of clarity as to what the new CEO's plan is going to be to turn it around. And if you listen to the call yesterday, it was really very general as to what it is he wants to implement. And the fact that Holiday was also very weak, or this last quarter uh, with comps falling 8.3%, I think people are just worried, like, what will it? What will they need to do to actually turn it around? I don't think the analyst got the color that we wanted. Like, what are you going to do? Is the improvement you saw on an adjusted calendar basis, will that continue into December? And I think that, you know, type of mystery is really concerning people. But on the flip side, he is a new CEO. I think he, he got rid of six senior members of management at the end of December. Um, I think he's really trying to reevaluate the business and see what he needs and then to get the right people on board to execute. Seema, I'm going to ask you a dumb question. It's probably a variation <laughs> of a question that uh, I asked you when you used to come into our studio as part of the BI team. How come somebody can't figure this out? Like, is this is this really that difficult at least to put the right plan in place like regardless of whether the plan works it feels like they haven't come up with a cogent plan in a number of years you have some ideas <laughs> i think i would agree but if you do listen to what any of the plans are both successful and maybe unsuccessful they really fall under the same thing you got to have the right people you need to have the right product unique product and a good experience online offline or some combination thereof and the problem is actually the execution. So if you listen to what uh, the CEO said, I think that's what he's trying to do. But you have to get all the right people in place. And Bed Bath in particular, they really had a very static senior management team for many, many, many years. So I think part of that will be clearing uh, sort of legacy inventory, legacy processes as they turn it around. But I think that's where the stumbling block is, less on the plan as so far as execution. Hey, one thing I wonder, Seema, is that um, the new CEO, right, comes from Target. Mm-hmm. We keep talking about yes. Target being such a kind of major turnaround and success story. It was one of the right. top performers in the S&P 500 last year in 2019. So was he key in helping that turnaround and target so is he in essence then the right guy to potentially turn around bed bath and beyond i think so he was a you know a huge part of improving and creating targets private label which has been very successful and also you know in improving their omni-channel experience so things like buy online pick up and store and that's really what bed bath needs they need to find a set of unique and differentiated products and i think Part of his goal is to add the private label, which he has a lot of experience with. And same with the Omnichannel. There's a lot of bottlenecks in their process in terms of, you know, collecting the packages, delivery, all that type of stuff. So I think he does have the expertise to do that. And I think that's part of why uh, 
he was thought to be a good successor. I have to uh, say, to over the company with Target, that's one of the things that recently got me back into Target. I ordered something online, and I mm-hmm. kind of wanted to pick it up soon. And I think I got it the next day yeah. or something. And it was a really at the store. Yeah, yeah, at the store, and it was a really, really uh, easy process, Jason. So, Seema, I have right, to- and that's what's happening everywhere now. I'm yeah. sorry, uh, Jason. Yeah. I'm just going to say that Bopis really buy online, pick up in store is the biggest trend. It's convenient for consumers, but it's also better for a retailer margin. Yeah. And so Seema, at what point is this company, and again, I think this is probably a question I've mm-hmm. asked you before, but like, at, at what point is this company just done? The, you know, like it, it's just unsalvageable in your estimation. <laughs> well, I would say from a balance sheet perspective and a credit perspective, they're in decent shape. They yeah. have plenty of cash. They generate a lot of cash. So I don't think there's any fear on that end at this point. It's not like some of their competitors. But I really think that after they do sort of this optimization and cut costs and figure out what they need to do, the other bigger effort and where you'll decide really if the company is going to succeed or not is whether they can become relevant again to younger customers. Because, you know, part of what he mentioned yesterday, according to an NPD study, you know, they don't have a lot of, uh, they have a very weak connection with Gen Z and millennials. Right. And I think. For most retailers, that's really the key. And if they can't do that, then, you know, they'll at least be able to maintain margin in the near term, but longer term sales would be a risk. So I think that's where uh, we'll have to, that's when I'd be really concerned about the branding or, you know, what it, you know, can they be relevant? Is it even a concept that needs to exist? And PD, of course, a big group that follows retail. Hey, one thing I want to ask you about, um, Seema, is mm-hmm. I'm looking at the balance sheet on the Bloomberg, the FA screen. I know you're probably really familiar mm-hmm. with it, but it seems like yeah. Bed Bath & Beyond has a fair amount of debt on its balance sheet. Is that the case? And if so, is it problematic? It's not problematic where they are. I think it. It's not, I wouldn't say that it was too much. I think it's, they've managed, they have a lot of cash, so I don't think there's any risk as it relates to the debt. They still actually even are buying back shares, surprisingly, even though it was a small amount uh, in the quarter. But I think from a, uh, you know, solvency perspective, they're, they're in fine shape. So, and, you know, they have, they just did a sale lease back where they got $250 million in net proceeds. They'll probably continue to do other deals that they find that opportunistically. And remember, they also have multiple other concepts that are being evaluated. So any sort of transaction uh, with those properties would also help. Uh, that's right. Flow. Yeah, that's a great point. We were talking about the Christmas tree stores yesterday, and I right. was I was unkind about them, Seema. I confess, I was unkind about the Christmas tree stores. It was stores. cruel, Seema. Uh, yeah, exactly. Great to yeah. catch up with you. Uh, really good Same to uh, you. to hear Thank your you. voice. Seema Take Shah, care. Director of Consumer Thank and you. Retail Trends at Credit Intel. Bed Bath & Beyond was up about 53% last year, and I'm assuming that was on expectations at the turnaround. You know, you're going to see something. Yeah, exactly. Something happened. Uh, but as we said, the stock's certainly seeing a fair amount of selling this year uh, and down already 18% today. I mean, I do think we are starting to get some sense over the last 18 months to two years of retail strategies that can work. You know, I mean, Target obviously is a, is a great example. And that's moving you know, a pretty big ship. End. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kohl's has been interesting to watch as well. Uh, obviously on the higher end, a Lululemon, something like that. But, you know, it, it's possible. It's possible. It's possible. Absolutely. And we'll see what happens. And, you know, since this guy is certainly familiar with what Target went through, but I think that's also very key when you've got an existing management infrastructure, yeah. you know, changing the mindset well, and the having idea that to he get got rid, rid of, of people. six people, six senior executives at the end of last year. Uh, I mean, it is a reminder that these things don't happen overnight. No. And yet I do feel like we've been talking about this name for a long time. Absolutely. And right now you've got uh, 12 holds on the stock, tw- uh, five 
buys and three sells according to Bloomberg uh, data. So uh, yeah, that's your mix when it comes to the Alice community. When it's three, you can see it's a magic number. Well, it is about three. Uh, we're talking about BlackRock, Vanguard, and State three. Street. The big three, right? They've got a nickname, and they also hold about 80% of all index money. That is what I call a WOA or WOW stat. Um, so let's get into the story. It's the cover story. It's in the finance section as well, but it is the cover story of the magazine. Uh, let's get into it with investing reporter Annie Massa. She co-wrote it. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Jill Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. It's also on the Bloomberg, at Bloomberg.com, and it's in the magazine on newsstands now. Um, Jason, I love this story. It's our must-read, one of our must-reads for the week. Um, because if you're invested in an employee retirement plan, you probably have your money in index funds, and you probably have it in index funds run by BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. That's right. <laughs> and so what does it mean that all of these, I mean, I, it, it feels like the question you're trying to answer is, okay, these are the facts. But what do we make of it? And, and what does it ultimately mean for us as investors, for us as employees, and for these companies? Yeah, the way we frame it in the story is really that it makes perfect financial sense to put your money in index funds. And over time, you've seen this vast shift from actively managed mutual funds to index mutual funds and ETFs as investors look for lower cost ways um, to grow their own money. But what's resulted is this power shift in some ways um, to, and, and it's really increased the voting power of the fund houses that offer all those index products. And those are the big three that you were referencing, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. And so what percentage of every company on the S&P 500 <laughs> on average do these guys own? On average combined, those three firms own 22% um, of every S&P 500 company. Which is one of those like <whistles> figures wow. like, wow, 22%, which is like up from what, 10 years ago? 13 and a half percent. So it's almost double. Exactly. Right? And that, I think, was the genesis of, like, why we were captivated by this. That's been, like, a 10-year phenomenon of just, like, epic bull market that defined the last decade. And, you know, Matt Levine in his daily newsletter will love to point amazing newsletter, money stuff. <laughs> by the way, generous plug to our Bloomberg right. Opinion columnist who's quick amazing. Quick plug, quick flex. Loves to talk about trends and the hatred of this conversation. Because, look index funds are maybe the greatest financial invention of all time. I'm invested in them. I'm pretty sure everybody else we is all are. basically touching them. A lot of good that this has done for the world as a whole and brought the cost of investing down, provided diversity. And yet, there, I think this is the real thrust of the story, Annie, is sort of like, what are the unintended consequences that come from this phenomenon becoming really, really, really hyper successful? Exactly. And there's this anxiety that's been percolating in academic circles and some activist circles as well around especially the increased um, voting power that those three firms have um, at the corporate level and also some anxiety over could it ever be an antitrust issue. So that's the one that I want to talk about a little bit because big tech is the thing that ever from a regulatory standpoint you know if anything seems like it's in the ire of congress right now or regulators in general i should say it's probably big tech but why might the big three gain some interest yeah the comparison there is really that big tech 
in you know has made our lives better in so many ways and you're starting to see some of the trade-offs that come with all those improvements to your life and so the comparison we draw in this story is that okay like it's made investing so much easier so much cheaper to have index products but the yeah the unintended consequences as you were saying um, is the idea that you've had this power shift. And you're starting to see regulators, especially the FTC, just start to monitor this issue and ask some questions about it because it's been coming up as the, as a topic again and again. And, and the two words that jump out, common ownership. Right. So that's the part of the yeah. story that I think warrants even more right. discussion. And so, Annie, what is the power that they are exerting or importantly not in in a lot of these cases because that seems to be one of the big questions as shareholders what are they actually doing or not doing exactly so uh, there are two camps on this really on the voting level um some say that they should they, they have so much power that they could potentially one day as they as they grow their voting power um, sway the outcomes of say board elections or shareholder proposal votes what the big three would tell you is none of them alone has the ability to sway any of those kinds of decisions right now. Um, so it's it's a non-issue and they say we don't vote as a block, but that's one camp that they might have too much power. The other camp is that maybe they're too hands off, that because they own so many, they own you know every company, um, how could they possibly take a really active role? If they in- own Coke and they own Pepsi, what's their incentive to really spur innovation at either? And, right. and make capitalism this fierce place that it's right. supposed to be, right? And I think, you know, uh, the other part that ties to that is on the silent side is the climate change conversation, because that's been a really climate change activist being a really vocal uh, group to say index funds aren't actually doing enough on this topic. And there's been so much scrutiny there that actually today you did see BlackRock join um, this investor advocacy uh, group on climate change. All right. Good stuff. Great story. It's the cover story. Check it out uh, when it hits newsstands. You can read it on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com. Today, Annie Massa co-wrote the story, investing reporter for Bloomberg. Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. He was here with us as well. It's great visual, too, when it comes to the cover. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Alan Lance. He is research director at LanceGlobal.com, president of Allen B. Lance and Associates. Once again, on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Uh, Happy New Year. Nice to have you back with us. Another year, a new decade. Uh, talk to us, though, because, you know, you last time, I think last year around this time, uh, you had a favorite stock, Celgene, uh, and uh, that was a pretty good call. Yeah, we got pretty pretty lucky with that. Uh, we talked about it in New Year's Eve uh, 2018 as uh, the type of risk-reward that we like, Carol, from a standpoint of uh, the stock was down tremendously. They had a lot of assets. Uh, biotech was out of favor, uh, much like mark, much of the market uh, the fourth quarter of 2018. And we just thought, 
that uh, had the the right risk reward combination. Um, little did we know that, you know, eight nine days later they would uh, accept a takeover at a at a what turned out to be a seventy percent premium um, to uh, as, as as far as where it was trading. Alan, uh, were you Bristol like, Myers. all right, everybody, close up the shop? Yeah, we're done my work for the is year. Done here. We did well. <laughs> <laughs> that was an eighty eight billion dollar deal uh, that Bristol Myers Squibb did for Celgene. It was huge. Yeah, and that that was a uh, you know ideal situation. Now, most of the time, to be fair, uh, you know our 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 favorite for uh, the year prior, 2018, was Chipotle, and I think we it ended the year uh, 2017 at uh, 297, and immediately went to 247 and dropped about 50 points uh, in the midst of all all their problems as as far as uh, with with the uh, uh, health care and and what have you, and and uh, it it has rebounded and and rewarded our. Our subscribers and our investors, but uh, typically that's what happens. We're early, and and uh, we don't have the luck like we did in Celgene last year. Well, rebound. I mean, just talking about Chipotle for a second. I mean, rebounded is a is an understatement to say the least. It almost doubled uh, last year alone, um, and it's uh, at another high, I believe, a 52-week high uh, today. Uh, it's trading at 862 a share. Amazing. Yeah, it's really had quite a bounce back, and you've liked this one. You guys still own it or would own it yeah we we own every share i mean we would not buy it here just like apple and the other favorites we've talked about over the years i mean we wouldn't chase but chipotle we still own uh, i think a brokerage firm just recommended it today that's why it spiked and yep. and and that's great you know i'm, I'm happy that uh, they're recommending it at such lofty levels but right now um you know our our main thesis on that was that uh with new management and and uh as, as far as with their opportunity internationally and, and with the drive-through and, and just um, invite, invigorating their um, current uh, uh, stores that they, that they could uh, easily do a turnaround and we like who they brought in. So so that was the, the thesis there. And, and um, now, you know, a lot of that is built in, into the valuation and, and um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue the ride, but we, we definitely wouldn't chase it here. All right, so dun, 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 tell us about your 2020 favorite. Well, our, our, our 2020, uh, we like uh, Cisco, uh, uh, CSCO uh, systems. I, I think uh, investors are missing out on that. They're going to benefit uh, uh, in 5G as the service providers there start building out their enterprise delivery networks. I think Cisco will, will capture a lot of that. It's really not noticed uh, by Wall Street. The stock is still at historic lows with a good dividend. So it's a little bit more conservative than what we talked about the last few years. Uh, but but I think uh, instead of chasing um, you know the ones that we own already, uh, we're going to ride the momentum on those as much as we can. And as as we uh, take profits or partial profits in the apples and and uh, the the. Alphabets or, or Googles of the world, uh, you know, I, 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 we're going to replace it with with companies like Chipotle. For for uh, listeners that uh, have a, a, a craving for something a little bit more speculative, I, I think Nokia. Wait, 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 another... wait, wait! I want to go back to Cisco for a second, Alan. What's sure. what's your thinking here? I'm looking at um, some of the projections in terms of revenue growth quarter to quarter here, uh, and and so far, based on estimates, we're looking for revenue declines in the upcoming couple of quarters, earnings growth, but re revenue declines, which always makes investors a little bit nervous here. So what's the thinking? You think that the projections that are out there are too pessimistic or what? 
Well, I, I think it's okay, Carol. The the first half, uh, okay. you know, it, it's going to be a struggle. But the second half, I, I really think, uh, um, as the 5G initiative starts taking hold, uh, that, that they are going to start showing growth, and and that's what obviously investors right now are are craving anything with growth and 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 that's why you've got all these momentum stocks doing so well so so we're just making gradually this transition from the momentum and the high quality names that we've liked for you know practically a decade now to uh uh basically uh get in into some of these other names whether they're undervalued and unrecognized uh uh or out of favor like a Nokia or whether uh, you know investors uh don't see the growth and and the potential uh, and in a turnaround, uh, we did the same thing ten years ago with Microsoft when mm-hmm. it was, you know, struggling in the twenties and and really didn't have any kind of growth initiative. And and I think Cisco could have, uh, you know, a really good decade. And that's that's the way we look at it uh, to buy it cheap here before it is recognized and before you start seeing the growth. Because by that time, I, I think you know this stock could be twenty, thirty percent higher. Right. Do you think Microsoft's been one of the sleeper stocks oh, of the last goodness. three years? It was yeah, up fifty five percent alone uh, last year. And on top of that, you had. Um, you know, more than a 1% dividend. All right, so let's talk briefly about another 5G-related name. That's your speculative pick uh, for 2020, Nokia. Uh, That company's had a tough time of late. Uh, What could turn it around? 5G? Yeah, they, you know, everything that has gone wrong could go wrong, and and I think you have the only not only 5G, you have uh, growth in China, you have a really good international presence that uh, you know the investors are, are really not looking at. Uh, I think really a lot of investors have just given up on this because it went under five dollars. Uh, they cut eliminated their dividend, and and it's just a matter of uh, uh, this company has, has just gone down to. Uh, you know, unprecedented levels that right. uh, I think is, is is attractive, and and somebody with a two year time frame, I'm not sure if it's going to be by the end of 2020. But I think if you have a two year time frame, you know, at, at three and a half, uh, four dollars, uh, you know, you could see a 50 percent move, similar to what we experienced with Chipotle the first year. And then mm. if they execute, then it could be like the second year with Chipotle, where right. the second year is actually better than the first. Interesting. All right. Well, love talking names with you. Thank you so much. Alan Lance, Director of Research at LanceGlobal.com, President of Allen B. Lance and Associates. He joined us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.